This is the story of the lame man who was healed at the gate beautiful. You all have heard this story. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've heard it preached many times. It's a great story, and it will preach like six or seven different ways, really. It will. But if you're like me, most of the time, I would venture to say, when you've heard this story taught, it was preached as an allegory or as a symbol for something spiritual, that the lame man being raised up was like how God lifted you up out of your sin, or it was how you were in depression and God raised you up and gave you joy, or I was trapped in this sin and God lifted me up. All of that's legitimate and all of that's good. But the story is about a man being healed and God using the testimony of the healing to bring the gospel to people. That's what this passage is about. And you'll hear people, a very common thing to say is, well, the book of Acts is a transitional book. It was a special time, never to be repeated. It started with Jesus, and then it ended when the apostles left, and now we're in a new time. I don't think that's the best way to describe the book of Acts. Transitional. I mean, in one sense, it was a transition, right? But people use that in order to say that the things we see in the book of Acts are not meant for us. That was just meant for back then. I think a better word is an inaugural book. Like it was the beginning of something new that continues. We saw this in Acts chapter 2 where Peter announced, he said, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then in that same passage, he talks about the sky turning black and the moon turning to blood and the Son of Man coming at the end of days. And he's saying all of this is tied up into the same time, the same age, when Christ would be exalted and the spirit would come. So he says this is going to continue. Remember he said that this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off and everyone that God will draw to himself. So he's announcing the book of Acts saying this that has just begun is going to continue until Jesus returns. But why then do we come to this and we say, well, for them, but not for us. We don't get to live like this anymore. I think the reason, and I think it's fair to say, is that we don't see stuff like this happening in our lives. At least we don't think we do. I'm going to pick at that a little bit. But we say, well, look, they saw people being healed. They saw miracles happening. They saw demons being cast out. They had dreams and visions. We don't have those things. So how do we reconcile that? And I think, unfortunately, the way we reconcile it is by coming and saying, well, I guess God isn't doing this kind of stuff anymore. But if you were just to take the Bible as written, like a radical fanatic, you would expect that the Lord intervenes in our everyday lives and that there are special times where the Lord reaches into your life for something spiritual, even supernatural or miraculous. And we cannot let our own experiences drive our conclusions when it comes to the word of God. Well, look, I've never seen anything like that, so it must not be the case. No, we don't do that. We say, what does the word say? If my life doesn't line up with that, then our first step should be, maybe there's a problem with me or my way of understanding the scripture. That's always a possibility too. But here's the thing, and we're going to talk about this today. Well, we don't see stuff like that anymore. I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, we do. We do hear stuff like this all the time. And I'm going to talk later before I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but we hear these testimonies and these stories all the time. Every single one of us has it. But we tend to think, well, that's, that's an aberration, that's abnormal, that's nothing that we should ever expect. But I think what the book of Acts teaches is the exact opposite of that, that those things, while they might not be happening as often as some people want to yell at us and tell us they ought to be happening, 
They are the kind of thing that we should expect with that kind of anticipation that what's God going to do today? You remember when Jesus went to Nazareth in Mark chapter 6, his hometown, and he begins to preach in the synagogue, and they got offended at him. They said, we know you. We know your mama. We knew where you grew up. We know your brothers and sisters. You're the carpenter, and you're going to come over here and tell us how to live. And it says they were offended at him, and Jesus could do no great work there because of their unbelief. It says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus of Nazareth was unable to do a great work in his own hometown because the people did not believe And I'm not going to stand up. It's very easy. And if it's easy to preach, sometimes you got to watch out. It's very easy to preach. Why don't you have more faith? Who would see more things happening if you had more faith? That's not the case. However, if the church is living in a settled state of probably not, then what are we going to expect? If we're expecting the Lord to act a certain way, that's going to change the way we behave, and we're going to see that that can even quench the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. I want to see what the Lord has said in the Word, and if it's wonderful and amazing and the kind of thing that most people can't believe, so much the better. That's what we ought to expect if it's God at work. Isn't that true? If it's really the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at work, then we should expect that he's going to do some wonderful things. And let's read. Acts chapter 3, we'll start at the first three verses. We're going to spend a lot more time going through the first 10 verses than we are the remaining 15 or 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Pause right there. Up till that verse, everything is perfectly normal and perfectly ordinary. But God's going to change that. It's the ninth hour. This would have been 3 p.m. This is the third hour of prayer that they had in the temple. In the temple, they had a dawn prayer, they had noon prayer, and then the afternoon or evening one, which was 3 o'clock. If you've ever read in the Psalms where he talks about the evening sacrifice going up, this is what they were going to. This is what Exodus 29, 39 had told them, that you sacrifice a lamb at the beginning of the day and one at the end of the day. And this is what they were going to celebrate. And we saw last week that the church was regularly, daily, in the temple, worshiping, praying, and seeking the Lord. And we see Peter and John. These are two of Jesus' disciples. They were also part of that old inner circle. Remember with James, Peter, James, and John? They were the ones that were taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They were ones that were brought into Jairus' house when Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. They were the three that went with Jesus a little farther in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the last time we saw them, they were fighting with each other. They're always fighting and squabbling, weren't they? But that's all gone now. And we look at these guys, and we see how they conduct themselves in this chapter and moving forward. And it's like, they came a long way from those fishing boats, haven't they? Remember Jesus called them both when they brought in that huge catch of fish? And he said, from now on, you're going to be fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed after Jesus. And here they are. And they come up to the beautiful gate. This was probably what was called the Nicanor Gate. It was named after the man that had donated it, the Nicanor Gate. And there were nine gates into the temple. Eight of them were silver and gold, probably cedar wood overlaid with silver and gold. This gate was made of pure Corinthian bronze. And they said it was so beautiful in its pure bronze state that they didn't want to overlay gold because it would have diminished the beauty of this gate. Isn't that something? They said it took 20 men at least to open and shut this gate. Beautiful, huge gate. And it would catch the sun and it would look like it was shining and beautiful. That's why they called it the beautiful gate. 
And here was a man that was lame from birth, laid there at this gate, unable to enter the temple. The law restricted the lame and the crippled and the diseased from going into the temple. Part of that was for health reasons, and another part of that was because the Lord was communicating something that the only people that can come to me are those who are pure. And if sin or corruption has entered in, you can't come. He was teaching a message through this law that he made. I and mean, you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8. And here he sits, begging day by day, living off of the pity and the mercy of people coming to worship. You can imagine his legs would have been never used. So they would have been the thin, just, just skin and bones, no muscle tone, nothing that would even grant him the possibility of lifting himself up. He had to be carried every day. And the Lord is about to take this ordinary situation and he is about to step in and make something extraordinary out of it. Up till now, there's nothing, nothing different, nothing special. It wasn't like there was an omen in the sky where there was a giant cross in the clouds and Peter knew, ah, the Lord's going to do something today. It was just an ordinary day. And today we're discussing the fact that the Lord likes to intervene in our lives and take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. But as I've said before, it would do me no good to stand up here and say, why aren't you healing more cripples? We've got a cripple quota that we've got to heal, and we've got to raise at least 45 people a month out of their wheelchairs. Like, that, that would be no good. That would be sick, first of all. And second of all, it would make you guys feel like you're not doing something right by not doing a miracle every day, which is not what God has told you to do. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Peter and John set the example here. You don't know when those days are going to come. The Lord does them as he wills, but you can be ready for those moments, ready to step out and act when the Lord says go. And how do we do that? Well, Peter and John set the example by faithfully, day by day, going to prayer, disciplining and strengthening their spirits. And this is the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to see three things today that will Help us to, to catch the wave, so to speak, when the Spirit is trying to move in your life. And the first thing is that ordinary discipline prepares us for extraordinary moments. We read last week in Acts chapter 6, they were fasting, they were praying, they were worshiping, they were fellowshipping with one another, meeting house to house, they were, they were sharing their goods with one another, and they continued in those things. And because they were continuing in those things, they were at a state where they were ready for God to use them. That They were listening, they were they were sensitive to his voice, and they had enough spiritual strength to step up and do it. In Mark chapter 9, verses 28 through 29, Jesus is uh, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he sees there's a fight going on between the Pharisees and the disciples. Not, nothing strange there, but he shows up and he finds out why. Because somebody had brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples, asking them to heal him. This is something Jesus had already given the disciples the authority to do, and they had done many times. But this time they could not cast out the demon. And Jesus calls the boy forward. The boy begins to writhe and to contort and throws himself on the ground and foams at the mouth, and Jesus casts the demon out with a word. And in Mark 9, 28, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Notice they asked that privately because they didn't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody. Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. You could put it this way. You were not ready for that. 
You do not know when the day is going to come where the Lord's going to call you to do something extraordinary, where the Lord is going to use you to speak a word to somebody that needs to hear it, when the Lord is going to call you to pray for somebody and they're going to be healed in that moment. You don't know when the Lord is going to use you for those moments. So you've got to be ready beforehand through those spiritual disciplines that I love to talk about, through prayer, through the word, through fellowship and fasting and worship and service, all these things. If there had been no Acts chapter 2, there would have been no Acts chapter 3. They would not have been ready The disciples in Mark chapter 9 lost a battle that Jesus expected them to win because they were not spiritually ready for it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, we're going to come and pray that you may not enter temptation because, he said, why? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And guess what? Only one of those 12 people prayed that night, and only one of them endured to the end, and that was Jesus Christ. They weren't ready for the battle because we have an enemy, y'all, that hates us. Have you ever noticed that when you try to do something godly, it becomes the hardest thing you've ever tried to do in your life? Have you ever tried to pray 30 minutes a day for 10 days in a row? All of a sudden, your life gets crazy busy. All of a sudden, you're tired at 5.30 at night. Like, why do I want to go to bed at 5.30? I'm just exhausted. Or if you say, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. All of a sudden, you can't find your Bible anymore. All of a sudden, you're getting phone calls in the middle of the day. All of a sudden, there's something that breaks down at work or there's a crisis in the family. And we say, oh, man, this just must not be a good time. No, it is a good time because you've got an enemy who is after you. Ephesians chapter 6 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We've got to remember this. We believe this as Christians. We've got to remember it and think about it every day that you have an enemy who is trying to stop you. I don't know of any football team that's ever tried this, but it would be an interesting strategy if a football team were to try and sabotage the practice fields of their rival. We're going to keep them from practicing. You know what we're going to do? Every time they come into their locker room, we're going to spread jelly donuts out for every single one of them. And we're going to, we're going to rip up the sod so that when they run on the field, they all get injuries. And uh, we're going to steal their equipment so that they can't find their other cleat and they've only got one. And you know, that, that seems kind of silly, obviously, but that's sort of what the enemy does. Oh, so he wants to be strengthening his spirit today. Put out some jelly donuts. Put out the things that he really likes and distract him from those things. Because he knows that it is through the repetition of the mundane that your spirit is strengthened. And there is an element of strength here. I don't fully understand it, but Jesus said, guys, you weren't ready. This was an especially powerful demon and you weren't ready for it because you hadn't been praying and fasting. Jesus had. And it was nothing for him. And it's not like you've got your own spiritual muscles that you're building up. It's your reliance on the Holy Spirit, your trust in the Lord, your faith, your discipline. It leads to spiritual strength. And there are going to be times in your life where the Lord wants to take your ordinary day and make something extraordinary out of it. And you've got to be ready to step up and speak out or stretch out your hand or prayer to the prayer of faith for somebody. You've got to ready yourself for those moments. We can all agree on that, can't we? Okay, I believe that the Lord does miracles, but I'm really kind of unsure about a lot of the stuff that I hear. Okay, fine. Can we agree on this? Let's pray more. Can we at least agree on that? Let's pray more. Let's pray that God would make us ready if he wants to do anything miraculous. At the very least, you'll have prayed more. (laughs) And the Lord will have changed you and made you that much more mature in your faith. Ready yourself for these moments. Ordinary discipline leads to extraordinary moments. Because they were going up to the temple regularly to pray, there was an opportunity that was open to them that would not have been open otherwise. Reading verse 4 now. This is when it gets cool. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He's about to receive something from them, all right? Peter said, I have no silver and gold. And the guy probably thought, well, what are you talking to me for? But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The ordinary day just became extraordinary. The routine was disrupted, (laughs) you could say. The guy was there every single day. I'm sure he had a rhythm. I'm sure he had a pitch that he ran through. I'm sure he had figured out the most efficient way to get the most alms out of people. It's like once they get past that fourth step, they're not giving you anything. Keep your eyes down that way. And he's got his business strategies and all the rest. And Peter stands there looking at him. says, hey, hey, look at me. The guy's like, oh, this is, this is going to be good. What do we got here? So I don't have any money. And the guy's like, great, thank you. I'm glad you don't have any money. Neither do I. That's the problem. And Peter senses from the Lord that this is time for this guy to be healed. He reaches out his hand, and he lifts him up off the ground, and he's healed. This was his day. Jesus would have walked past this guy for 30 years and never healed him. The disciples and apostles would have walked by this guy three times a day for who knows how long. But this was his day. And the Lord was ready to move. Imagine the celebration. Remember, this guy had never used his legs. It wasn't like he had strong legs and then got in an accident. He had never used his legs before. His feet would have been all deformed. His his legs would have been that really thin. You've you've ever seen somebody that is in a wheelchair, how their, their legs atrophy and the muscles get smaller. And he's laying there on the ground, but he stands up, and all of a sudden he has legs that work. And he's standing. He's like, I'm standing, and I'm not falling. And he starts to walk, and then maybe he... You know, tries to bounce his knees a little bit. And then he starts running and leaping and jumping and praising God. And then he gets to go into the temple for the first time for prayer and to observe the evening sacrifice. I bet you this dude was weeping with joy that he finally got to go in. I'm going to give the obligatory disclaimer, but I'm not going to make this a, a day of disclaimers. Does the Lord always desire to heal an infirmity or to work a miracle in someone's life? No, he doesn't. Obviously not. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is Paul the apostle. This is Paul who struck people with blindness. (laughs) This is Paul who they used to steal his sweatbands and steal his washcloths and take them home and people would get healed just by touching the sweat. And Paul had an infirmity and he prayed to the Lord three times to be healed. And the Lord said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to heal you. So does the Lord always want to heal? No. Sometimes the Lord wants to heal, but not yet. The Lord wanted to heal this guy. But as far as this guy knew, for 40 years, God wasn't interested in helping him. That's the thing that we need to remember, because there are those that will try and bend you out of shape and say, God always wants to heal every time, and if he doesn't, it's your fault. That can put a real trip on people, man. It really can. I'm not trying to do that. The Lord doesn't do that. But here's the thing. Sometimes he does. I would say often he does. More than we usually see, I would venture to say, he does. Where the Lord wants to step out and do something miraculous. And when he does, if we're prepped, like we've talked about, we've got to step out in those moments. And this is our second thing. Step out in faith when the ordinary becomes extraordinary. This is the tricky part. First part's pretty tricky too. But we've got to be willing to step out in faith. I love Peter. 
And we love to use Peter as like the butt of the joke in the church, don't we? Oh, silly Peter rebuking Jesus. Silly Peter climbing out of the boat. Silly Peter and all the stuff he did. But you know what? He's the guy that God put in charge. Do you know why? Because he was just wild enough to try stuff like this. The Lord's like, I'm going to need somebody who is willing to take a lame man by the hand and jerk him up and say, stand up and walk. What kind of person is willing to do something like that? The person who, in his unsanctified state, is willing to take the Messiah aside and say, far be it from you, Lord, that you should ever suffer. That's why God picked Peter. That's why God picked the 12 disciples. We read through this throughout the book of Luke. The Lord picked 12 squabbling frat boys to be his disciples. Why? Because, the, yes, it was, it was wrong for James and John to say, Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and toast these Samaritans? Yes, that was wrong, but you know what the Lord saw in them? He saw that they had enough faith that they could call down fire from heaven. The Lord's like, those are the kind of people I'm going to need. People who have enough faith to step out. And that's why God chose Peter, because he was that kind of guy. And we laugh and we scoff at how Peter was so undignified. Yeah, but the Lord used him, man. The Lord used that crazy fisherman. And the more you walk in the spiritual disciplines, the more you grow in prayer especially, and in the knowledge of the word, and your understanding of who God is, and your fellowship in the church, you will grow more and more accustomed to what it is like when God is speaking and moving. And then the Lord will speak to you in that moment and say, now I want to do something awesome. I could preach a whole other message on how to know the voice of the Lord, but it basically boils down to two things. Number one, know what he's already said. Know your Bible. And number two, spend a ton of time in prayer so that you're familiar of what it's like when you and God are having a conversation. But the third step is you've got to step out. I think God is, is moving. I'm going to take a step of faith. Yes or no? Nope, that wasn't God. Next time I know that that's not what that feels like. Oh, uh, I don't know about that. That sounds a little crazy. Well, Peter was a little crazy, wasn't he? We have to act in those moments. And the thing is, how, how do you know when God is wanting you to step up and speak to somebody or pray for somebody or the Lord might want to do something wonderful through you? Usually it's because an idea pops in your head and you can't shake it. And the more you think about it, your heart starts to race and you start to sweat a little bit. Wouldn't it be cool if the Lord just reached over and prayed for that person and they were healed right there in this moment? We have those thoughts all the time. But sometimes you get those and you just can't shake it. And you're sitting there at your desk and you can't get it out of your mind. And the more you think about it, maybe I should go pray for them. And all of a sudden, you're scared to death. You pray for people all the time. But now the thought of praying for somebody freaks you out. Because what is that? That's spiritual warfare. You've got push-pull from the enemy and the Lord working on you. You need to listen for that because sometimes that's the Lord talking to you. And in those moments, oh, that's when we start making excuses. Lord, you want me to raise this man up? Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll ask him if, he, if I can carry him around the corner so that way if he doesn't get healed, no one will see and no one will lose face. Lord, I don't want to embarrass this guy in front of everybody. Lord, I'm running late for the prayer meeting. I can't stop for this now. Lord, that guy's rude to me. He yells at me whenever I don't give him stuff. You want me to go out and, and save this guy? Lord, I sinned yesterday and you want me to go out and do something? I can't do it, Lord. The excuses start piling up. Steps of faith have to be able to go past the excuses, saying, yes, all of that is true. I'm going to take a step anyway. That's a step of faith. And Peter, you see, stepped out far enough that there was no room for uncertainty. This is the other thing about taking steps of faith, is that sometimes we take little baby steps of faith so that it's really easy to pull back if all of a sudden it feels like it's not working. Peter took this man on the hand and raised him up. That was only going to go one of two ways. 
That's a step of faith. And John was there, and it seems that John had faith for him to be healed too, but I wonder if John goes, Peter! <laughs> and they had a split second of, oh no, what did you do this time, Peter? But the Lord was at work. You've got to take enough of a step of faith that you can tell whether or not the Lord was in it. This happens especially, guys, when we pray for people to be healed. I'm going to say this as kind as I can because I do it too. But we'll pray for people to be healed. And we start out really bold. By the time we're done, we've built a nice little off-ramp in case God decides he doesn't want to do it after all. You know what I mean? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal him. And in Jesus' name, he'd be able to walk again. But Lord, if you choose not to do that, that's okay. We're just going to trust you. And if you want to maybe use a doctor, that's okay too. Uh, so that way, God's got three options. And either one, we can say that God... Like, Okay, look, is all that technically, theologically true? Yes, but what is that? That's not faith. That's fear. You're afraid you're going to embarrass God. At least that's how I always feel. Like, oh, Lord, if you don't heal, and I pray this bold prayer, all of a sudden I'm going to make you look bad. Of course, is it really about the Lord? No, it's about me, isn't it? I'm going to look ridiculous. I'm supposed to be the pastor, and all of a sudden I'm praying for people and nothing's happening. Well, that can't happen, so I'll pray this really nice prayer that no matter what happens, God answers. I don't think the Lord is honored by prayers like that. Jesus said, come and ask whatever you need and I'll give it to you. He didn't say, come, hedge your bets so that no matter what happens, you can still say that God was at work. Step out. If God is moving, then go for it. And some of us, we then say, okay, look, if I knew for sure that that was God, I'd be happy to step out. If I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, 100%, that that's what God was doing, I would do it. Like if God showed up in thunder and lightning and a tornado from heaven and said, pray for that man to be healed, I'd say, yes, Lord, absolutely. I'm gonna tell y'all, it doesn't work like that. Usually what you get is a nudge from the Lord. Just a nudge. And we're going to see this several times in the book of Acts. They're going to say things like, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's it? It seemed good, Paul? That's all you've got is it seemed good? James, it seemed good? That's the best you've got? Yes. Check out Matthew 14 when Jesus comes to them walking on the water. He's out there and he's walking and they say, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's me. And then Peter is about to take a step of faith. Peter answered him, Lord, if that's you, command me to come on the water. We need pause and absorb that for a second. We're so used to that. He asked if he could walk on the water too. Lord, that's so cool. Can I do that? People will tell us, Jesus did things, and, and very great men of God do things. That doesn't mean they're for you, too. Peter didn't think that way. Peter said, that's so cool. He's walking on water. God, can I do that, too? And Jesus said, Peter, you need to be okay with what I have seen fit to give you. I've already given you a boat. It's not fair for you to want to walk on water, too, you big show-off. You're just trying to show everybody how special you are. Is that what Jesus said? He said, come on. I think Jesus was smiling when he said that. All right, come on. Maybe you thought they were going to have a Bible study out there in the middle of the storm, all, all 13 of them. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, I told you, Peter, if you ask for things that are too big, you're going to get burned. He said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter asked for two things in that story, and he received both of them. Lord, command me to come out on the water, and Lord, save me. The only person that failed in that story was Peter. Sometimes it's stepping out of the boat, you guys. Lord, if 
Lord, it seems. Lord, wouldn't it be cool? Lord, I think it would be awesome. Listen, you know the mind of God. You know your Bible. You know how God works. You know when you're asking for something carnal for yourself. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray that I would lay hands on my car and all of a sudden it would be a Corvette when I open my eyes. You know when you're asking for something carnal. But when you're asking for something miraculous that is within the will of God, why should we expect that God is immediately, automatically not interested? I think the Lord loves bold ideas from his people. And I could talk about this for a long time, and I shouldn't for time's sake, but do you ever read of the Lord telling Elijah, go and tell everybody there's going to be no rain for three years? Elijah just shows up and says, except at my word, there will be no rain. And James tells us, why did that happen? Because he prayed. I think the Lord heard that and said, all right, I like that idea. Let's go for it. But you're not ready for that. Let me get you to the brook Cherith for a few years, and we'll strengthen your spirit for the battle that's coming up. Sometimes this is why God uses what we see as weird people, like Peter, like John the Baptist, like men throughout history. You read about the people that the Lord used in miraculous ways, and you read about them, and you go, I don't know about all that. They're a little kooky. But you know what? Sometimes it's the people that are just a little kooky that can say, well, hey, if God can heal people, let's go pray for some people. Let's go find some lame people and try and raise them up out of their chairs. Those are the kinds of people that God can use because there's faith there. And it is always amazing to me how much God is willing to overlook in our lives if there's faith. The Lord is willing to overlook sometimes bad doctrine or inexperience, sometimes even moral failure for a while if there is faith. The Lord honors faith. So when you're talking to somebody and you think that the Lord wants to touch their life in a special way, if you think the Lord wants to heal them, Step out in faith. Can I give you just a really easy formula that worked for me sometimes? Here's what you just say. If someone's like, look, my back is giving me trouble, or I've got this diagnosis from the doctor, or my wife, or my kid, or whatever, just say something very basic like this. Look, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he told us that if we ask for anything in his name, he will do it. Sometimes my God heals people when I pray for them. Can I pray for you? Is that so difficult? That's bold, and that's full of faith, but it's down to earth, and it's something I think we can all grab hold of. You know, nobody's got their eyes rolling back in their head or anything weird. It's just, hey, I believe in a God that heals people. Can I pray for you? And then pray a prayer asking for healing. <laughs> pray a prayer and ask for healing. Don't say, Lord, we love you. Do whatever you want to do in their life. No, no, step out and, and ask from the Lord for them to be healed. And if they're not healed, okay. Okay, you stepped out in faith and you prayed. But God will bear you up. And the more steps of faith you take, the more you're going to see the Lord stepping in. You've got to step out. Moving on, verse 9. So the cripple is now leaping, dancing, celebrating. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. He walks in, everyone's gathering, and I wonder if one of the priests is, is doing the sacrifice and all of a sudden does a double take. And, I know that guy. Who's that dude bouncing around over there? It's like, oh, that's the, that, that's the guy from the gate. And he you know, brings the offering over and says, that guy over there, that guy's from the gate. And we're like, what is everyone looking at? That's that guy. And all of a sudden, you know, the prayer meeting has become totally disrupted because look at that, he's over there and he's sitting there doing jumping jacks during prayer because he's never used his legs before. And they're all amazed. What happened here? This man didn't keep his story to himself. Everybody knew it 
right away. And this is the third thing we're going to get into. I talked first, we were about before the Lord does something extraordinary. Second is how to step out in something extraordinary. And the third thing that comes after this, you've got to tell your extraordinary stories to build extraordinary faith. Do you see this loop here? You start by disciplining yourself in the, in the Lord, praying, fasting, studying the word. And you take steps of faith in those moments. And when the Lord uses you in those moments, you've got to tell those stories because those stories will work to build up not only you, but those around you in that step one process, getting you ready for the next time God wants to initiate step two. I have a pastor friend in Louisa, Virginia, who they have a food bank. And somebody came in for the food bank and she said that I have a tumor in my spine and it was like a baseball sized tumor he laid hands on her and prayed for her she went home was feeling better reached around to her back and the tumor fell out in her hand this was not 1945 this was 2000 like 17 16 she came back with it in her hand and said look the lord healed me and a few days later somebody showed up to the food bank and said hey where's the healer where's the what we don't have a healer well i had heard the story about what's her name and he had some other stories too I know a pastor in Old Bridge, New Jersey, a couple that had come to their church for a long time, came to him and said, we think our son might have a demon. He said, well, you know what, bring him in, let's see. I found that a lot of times when people say that, they're very concerned, and usually it's nothing that's that serious. It's just your child is rambunctious and you're having a hard time dealing with it. But they brought in this kid to the front lobby of the church. The pastor comes down and immediately, Mark chapter 9, this kid started speaking. He said in multiple voices, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's contorting and thrashing on the ground. And the pastors and staff laid hands on him and prayed for him, and the demon left that kid. And he's serving in the church faithfully now. In Haiti, our church sent a medical mission down to Haiti, and they were you know, having people come in and they would consult with them and give them the medicine they needed. And this lady brought in her baby that she said, I don't know what to do for my baby. And the doctor said, ma'am, your baby is dead. There's nothing I can do for your baby. I'm sorry, you've got to go. And these two women from our church just felt so bad for her. They went out and said, can we pray for you? And they prayed for her. And in that moment, that baby came back to life and is alive to this day. When you start sharing miracle stories, you know what you find? Everybody has one. Everybody in this room has a story of a time where God has done a miracle in your life or in somebody close to you that you know. Isn't that the case? Wednesday night, I said, how many of you, raise your hand if you've seen a miracle or a healing in your life. Everyone raised their hand. The whole church. And by the time you finish telling all those stories, you've got your own little book of Acts right there, don't you? But you know what happens? Every time a miracle is done, what happens? The devil comes in and tells you, keep it to yourself. Don't tell anyone well, if I tell the story, then the glory is going to go to me. It's not going to go to God. If I tell the story, everybody's just going to be interested in the miracle. They're not going to want to hear about the gospel anymore. This is there's one here I, most, I hear most often. It was something between God and me that God wanted to keep between us, a special moment that I had. You guys, you are robbing the rest of us of the chance to grow in our faith. And there's nobody specific. I'm talking about all of us. We're afraid to tell those stories. John chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus healed the blind man. Guy gets dragged before the Sanhedrin. And they said all these things about Jesus. Don't you know who he is? Don't you know he's a sinner? And in John 9, 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The more you hear of what Jesus has done, the more faith you have that God is still working and could work through you. My father, when he was a child, six, seven years old, had chronic ear infections from the time he was a baby, debilitating ear infections, hurting in his ears. If you ever had a child with ear infections, you know how hard that is. 
and my grandparents were friends with a faith healer. I'm talking the tent and the revival slain in the spirit faith healer. Okay? Tons of stuff that I have no intention of duplicating here. But she says, you know what? Why don't we go and we'll have him pray for you? Laid hands on my six-year-old father who said he felt like electricity shot through his head. He passed out, slain in the spirit, even though he had said, I will never fall over. I'm not going to be like one of those crazy people. And to this day, he has no trouble with his ears anymore. I prayed for a woman back home in Virginia who was having serious neck pain and was having a consultation to go in for a surgery to correct the, the spine in her neck. And we prayed for her and said, I can't bend my neck more than this on this side. And we prayed for her. I said, how's it feel? She said, ah, it still hurts. We prayed for her again. I said, try it now. And she goes, oh, okay, well, there we go. Thank you. Last year when I was having my taxes done, I went in and talked to the guy, and I told him I was a pastor. And he says, well, let me tell you a story. You're a pastor. You might believe this. And he told me a story of when his heart had given out and he was rushed to the emergency room and his wife was sitting there praying for him and she had a, a vision where an angel climbed up into bed with him and she knew that he was going to be all right. He says, no, most people don't believe stories like that. It's true, though, isn't it? Why do we doubt stories like that? Is there anything biblically that would tell us that stuff like that can't happen? No. And we, we somehow start to think, if I share this, they're going to think I'm weird. They're going to try and poke holes in my story. But we've all got them. And if we would talk about them more, it would build our faith. And we'd say, look, I've got a thousand stories about God's healed people. Let me pray for you. All of a sudden, we become prosecuting attorneys. And I know my own spirit, too. Somebody came and said, you know, the Lord healed me. I had whatever disease, and I don't have it anymore. Immediately, I go, all right, let's see some documentation on that. Let's prove, where are the x-rays? I want to see them. And all of a sudden, the Lord will speak to me and says, are you a Christian or aren't you? Do you believe that I'm a miracle-working God or don't you? Is this the kind of thing we should expect God to do? Yes. There's a pastor I know in San Diego who was crazy into the drug scene when he was a teenager. And he, he had a very bad experience, long story, but he got to the point he had overdosed and was convinced that half of his head was missing. And he had gone completely insane. Went forward at the church. Someone laid hands on him. And he said it felt like his head exploded. And his mind was cleared. And he's a pastor in San Diego to this day. There's a pastor in Nepal I know who was a witch doctor. I'm talking full-on, bones-in-the-nose witch doctor. And he said when he became the next witch doctor, they, they had a big ceremony where the way he said it was, they prayed the devil into me. They had a ceremony and a ritual where they called upon a demon to possess this guy to be the next witch doctor. He became an alcoholic. People who struggle with, de with demons, it seems like there's always some kind of substance abuse problem there because they're miserable in the spirit. He had a dream when he was sick on his deathbed, a dream. No, nobody spoke to him. A dream where God came to him and said, there is somebody in the next village who can tell you about a God who will heal your body. So he sent his children to bring this missionary over who told him about Jesus, prayed for him. Not only was he healed, the demon was cast out of him. And now not only he but his son are both pastors in Nepal to this day. I have a friend back in Virginia who told me a story of how the Lord healed him. He had struggled with asthma even into his adulthood. And he was a young adult. And he went to a meeting where they had been talking about healing. And I love how he said, he said, and there was no... No special, flashy anything going on. He said, it was just a good old country boy in his overalls. And I went up and said, I want, I want to be healed of my asthma. And he said, all right, what's your name? Jeff. Lord, please heal Jeff. And he said, and immediately my whole chest tightened up. And it started to hurt, but I felt like something was moving. And he said, is anything happening? He said, yeah, there's a tightness in my chest. He said, okay, more, 
Lord, heal Jeff Moore. And he said he prayed like that for a few minutes. And this might sound disgusting, but it's a cool story. He said there was this big ball of like mucus that he ended up spitting out. And from that day forward, he has never had asthma. He's never had any trouble with his breathing. And he's a pastor now serving in Virginia. We all have these stories. I could go on and on and on. God is still working. I have to stop myself from keeping going. What's the point? You've got to tell your stories. Because the more you tell them, the more faith it builds in us. And we're like, well, that's not somebody I read about online. That's him. That's her. That's me. God is still doing it. And then that leads you to have that prayer of faith where you just go, look, I believe in a God who heals people. He's healed people close in my life. He's done amazing things. Can I pray for you? And then you pray, and the Lord has an opportunity to work. Don't be afraid of words like healing or miracles or angels and demons. We live in such a scientific world where you say words like that, and all of a sudden you feel like you've got to explain yourself. I remember watching an interview with... uh, some atheist or other, and he was talking about the statistics that like, something like 70% of Americans still believe in God, and like 55% of Americans still believe in angels. He goes, how preposterous, they believe in angels. And like, he's an atheist, so why are we importing that attitude here? Who are we trying to impress anyway? They don't care about us. Oh, we really want them to like us. They're not going to like us. So why are we worried about that? So three things. Number one, ordinary discipline prepares us for extraordinary moments. I can't tell you to go out and here's the five steps to have a successful healing ministry. What I can tell you is go home and pray. Read your Bible. Seek the Lord. Number two, when those moments come, by the sovereignty of God, step out in faith when the ordinary becomes extraordinary. You've got to do it. You've got to open your mouth. You've got to stretch out your hand. You've got to be willing to pray. And number three, tell your extraordinary stories to build extraordinary faith. Because we believe this. We believe all this. And Peter is going to explain in verses 11 to the end, and we're going to go much faster through this section here, but he's going to explain two biblical reasons why we believe God is still doing this stuff. You can say, okay, that all sounds great, but what does the word say? Listen, that's a great question. I want to know what the word says. You can tell me all the stories in the world you want, but if it's not in the word, I'm not interested. But if it is, I'll fight you tooth and nail on it. And we all should. Read verse 11 now. So they're all marveling. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? (laughs) Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So they gather to the church's regular meeting place. It's called Solomon's Portico, sometimes called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Colonnade. Uh, Simon Kistemacher, he gives a description of it. It was a three-aisled colonnade with columns that reached to a height of 27 feet. The rows of columns were spaced 30 feet apart at the side aisles and 45 feet at the center aisles. In all, there were 162 columns. The colonnade was covered with a cedar roof, and the place itself afforded ample room for countless people. Remember, the church had over 3,000 people at this point. And after this, they're going to have 5,000 more 
So they needed this huge meeting place where they could meet together. And Peter launches into his second speech in the book of Acts, taking the chance that the healing provided to offer the cure for the Spirit, the gospel. And he begins by deflecting attention away from himself. I'll tell you, some people have abused the way that God uses them to create a cult of personality around themselves. And it doesn't just have to be healing ministry. It can be anything where all of a sudden your name is stamped on everything and your face is on everything. And it's all about you and no one can do anything else. And the glory is all for yourself. But it's about Jesus. It's not about us. Peter's like, what are you looking at me for? Well, Peter, you're the first pope. He says, no, no, it's not me. I have no power. I have no piety. There's nothing about me that could make this happen. And that's a good lesson, too. People will teach you, well, if you're just righteous enough, God will start to use you. Peter said, it's not my power. It's not my piety. It's faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter gives the name that God used at the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can see as we go through this, and we'll talk more about it in further weeks, but the continuity that he's trying to build between the Old and the New Testaments. It's like, why are you marveling at this? This is the same God that parted the Red Sea. We believe this stuff. He's done this all through our history. He did it with Elijah and Elisha. He did it through John the Baptist, and he did it through Jesus. So, yeah, this this is our God. Why are you worried about this? Why is this surprising to you? And he mentions all these names, the righteous one, the holy one, the author of life. These are all names for the Messiah. And the Jews had speculated, like, is this the same person? Are they different people? Is it different stages? And Peter says all of this is bound up in the one person of Jesus Christ. And again, like he did in chapter 2, he rebukes them for the sin of crucifying Jesus. He's not worried about losing the fish on the hook by teaching a hard message. But he contrasts that with the way that God has glorified Jesus as Lord. He said, you treated him this way, but this is how God treated him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first reason we believe that God is still working today is that Jesus is on the throne and has all power to save. This is the very simple message of the early book of Acts. Remember, Paul in Romans is going to give us a long, detailed explanation of salvation. Book of Acts, it's cut and dry. Jesus is the Son of God. He's risen from the dead. He can offer you salvation. He has the right to. And it's the same thing here. He can offer healing because he's risen from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father. It's like in, in uh, the story where Jesus healed the paralytic that they lowered down through the roof. Remember, he said, your sins are forgiven. How dare you say something like that? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, you're right. You might be onto something. He says, and that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He healed the man. It's the same thing. The miracle validated the message that was being preached. You never want to get the cart before the horse. Let's preach a message and then God might do some cool miracles. Oh, it's it's backwards. (laughs) The message is the most important thing. But what he's saying here is if you believe that Jesus is exalted and can save your soul, how much more can he touch our bodies? We are seeing the continuation of the work that Jesus did. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, it says, They brought him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Remember that passage from Isaiah 53? By his stripes we are healed. 
Matthew saw the healing ministry that Jesus had as the fulfillment of that prophecy. He didn't just spiritualize it. So there was a literal aspect to this as well. So he was a radical fanatic just like we are, I guess. Jesus' ministry, bearing the wounds and the stripes of the people, continued through Peter. This is what Luke said at the beginning of the book. In the first volume, Theophilus, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication that in the book of Acts, this is everything that Jesus continued to do and to teach through the church. That if we continue the work of Jesus and the message of Jesus, we will continue to see the same things surround us that surrounded Jesus. This is why you see people on the cutting edge of the mission field seeing healings and miracles done all the time. Because they are explicitly and singularly focused on the mission. And they're stuck in these situations where there's no way these people are coming to Jesus unless God does something miraculous. But the Lord comes behind them and empowers them. And then we start creating this theology where, well, once the gospel has gone to a place and it's, and it's been settled and the Bible takes root, then we don't need miracles anymore. Is that anywhere in the Bible? No, it is not. That, again, comes out of church history. And listen, there's plenty of stuff in church history that I don't care to repeat, okay? A lot of stuff that I think we should. Plenty, though, that I'm not interested in repeating. I want to know what the Word says. And I'll tell you something, if I can get real for a second. When we say, well, we don't need miracles because the Bible is enough to validate the Word of God. I'm not putting anything down against the Bible, but you know what? My generation does not care what the Bible says. They do not care. They have no respect. They don't even know what it says. So you, you used to come to people that had grown up in Western culture, more or less, and say, look what the Bible said. Like, you're right. I need to come to Jesus. My generation's not going to do that. Who cares what the Bible says? Who cares what the Quran says? Who cares what Buddha says? Who cares what anybody says? I can go online and find anybody who says anything I want. They do not recognize the authority of Scripture. It is the perfect time in history for the Lord to start reawakening these things. Why should I listen to the Bible? Because the God of the Bible can heal your body. This is how people get saved over in Nepal and Africa and all these places. We've got a thousand gods. What's so special about yours? This one can change your life. And this is the message that our generation needs. And I think as we continue to drift, we're going to continue to need this even more. And this has nothing to do with us. This has nothing to do with us being able to have some kind of magical power. There are people that get into that. Like they really want to see miracles because they're just fascinated with magic and signs and wonders and God doing something really cool. It's about the message, the fact that Jesus is exalted, that he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's ready to act on behalf of those who are going to continue his work. He's made promises to his church that we get to believe. Isn't that awesome? The Lord said, these signs will follow those who trust in my name. And he gives that long list in Mark 16. Like, really? All right. We're going to read about Stephen in a few chapters. That was his attitude. Well, if God said it, then let's do it. Let's get out there. Let's, let's put ourselves in a situation where there has to be a miracle or there's no chance. Let's put ourselves out there where the Lord can work, taking steps of faith. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, you Jews first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he comforts them. He starts with that very strong statement, you crucified the Messiah. But he says, but I know you did it in ignorance. Remember Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the law, there was forgiveness for unintentional sins. Defiant sins, there was no forgiveness provided. But Peter's like, look, I know you didn't know. So there's repentance available. Seek those times of refreshing. He tells them, guys, you're living in the days of fulfillment. When the Lord promised Moses there's going to be a prophet like you who's going to be raised up. That's Jesus. He's told Abraham in Genesis 22, in your seed all the peoples of the world will be blessed. He says, that's Jesus. You're living in the times of fulfillment now. And guys, this is the second reason why we can expect this stuff. We are living in the times of fulfillment when the Spirit is poured out on all of God's people, when healing and the gospel are brought to the world, these are the days in which we live. Jesus said in Mark 16, signs and wonders would follow those who believe. In John 14, he said, you'll do even greater works than I do, and I will answer every one of your prayers. We're living in those days. But the devil loves to come in and say, those days are over. Those days aren't for you. They're for somebody else, somewhere else, some other time. Once the apostles were gone, once the revivals were over, once the gospel was established, there's always reasons why we shouldn't expect the Lord to fulfill his promises. But we are living in the age of fulfillment. Jesus is on the throne, and these are the days God talked about. So we can expect these things. And y'all, I know that there are so many strange people that take this stuff and run off with it, and they make us afraid to be a part of this because we say, I don't want to be like that. Good. We don't want to be like these people that run off in these crazy directions. I just want to stand on the word of God. You learned that when you were a kid, the B-I-B-L-E. I stand alone on the word of God. The word of God. And this is what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is on the throne. His promises are being fulfilled now, today. So get out and take steps of faith. Be ready for those moments. Can you control when God's going to do it? No, you can't. Don't let anybody tell you that you can. But you can be ready for when the Lord says, now. Today, Peter, we're going to heal this guy. Today, we're going to speak the gospel to this person, and they're going to listen. Today, the Lord wants to deliver you from this sin. Look to the word. The possibility of God's intervention was baked into the early church. James chapter 5, he even, among all the other instruction he gives, he says, hey, if you're sick, go to the elders of the church. They'll lay hands on you, they'll pray for you, they'll anoint you with oil, and you'll be healed. It was just part of what they did. It was part of their life. Paul could reference, I talked about it last week, in the Galatians and Thessalonians and other churches. He says, you guys know all the cool stuff God does in your midst all the time. And we say, well, why not here? That's the question, why not here? Can we control it? No, but you can be ready and you can step out and you can give that testimony when it's over because these are the days that the prophets looked forward to. Peter wrote that in his epistle. He said they looked at the days that they were writing about and said, Lord, I don't get to do that. Who's that for? He said, even the angels desire to look into the salvation that we have in all of its facets. It was part of the early church. 
the expectation that God intervenes into the ordinary. It's part of the missionary churches that we talk about so much, that they believe that God will intervene into the ordinary. And it's part of the churches that believe it. Well, if God's going to do something, he's going to do it, but I'm not going to pray for it because that, be, that would be selfish. Well, if that's what you believe, you're going to have some trouble in Acts chapter 4 when they pray for exactly that. It's really easy for us to start to feel bad about ourselves when we hear this. Like, oh, what a, I'm just not good enough. That's not the point. The point is that you're living in a time where God says, I'm going to do more in that age than I've ever done before. And that's the age you got born in. Isn't that awesome? That we live in the age of possibility where the Lord is still moving and still working. I'm going to end with two quick stories. Andrew Murray was a pastor in South Africa in the turn of the 1900s. He wrote a lot of amazing books, all of which are worth your time. He's got one called Absolute Surrender that is required reading as far as I'm concerned. But he wrote a book called Divine Healing in 1900 where he laid out what the Bible says about Christians and he came to the conclusion that Christians in the church should expect that the Lord will be working out healing in the church through prayer. The book was sent out. He was a Dutch Reformed pastor, so it went throughout the Dutch Reformed church. And after a few years, the pastors signed a petition to the Dutch Reformed leadership asking them to stop printing the book. Do you know why? Because they said, people in my church are reading it, and they're coming to me and asking for me to pray to heal them, and I can't heal them. So many people were saying, well, if that's what the Bible says, let's pray. And the pastors did not have enough faith to pray. And they took the book off the market, but you can find it now because of Amazon. <laughs> He didn't say anything flashy or anything wild. He just said, here's what the Bible says, and guys, I've been reading the Bible, and I think we ought to expect the Lord's going to answer prayers to hear, heal people. People read it and said, oh, great. Hey, pastor, will you pray for me? Uh, I don't know about that. Would you stop printing this book? People keep thinking God's going to touch their lives in a personal way and heal their bodies. I can't do that. You're right, you can't, but God can. And the second story, which I'm sure you've heard before, Thomas Aquinas, the famous doctor of the church, visited Pope Innocent II in the Middle Ages, and he was shown a great offering that had been given to the church. And the Pope said, no longer can we say, referring to this story, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas said, neither can we say in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And you know an interesting story about Thomas Aquinas? He wrote his five-volume Summa Theologica, amazing book, it's changed the course of world history, really. It very much did. But he didn't finish it. And he was always being pressured to finish it in his lifetime. And do you know why he didn't? I read the story, and it blew my mind. He said the reason he didn't finish it is because he had an encounter with God in a prayer time where the Lord so revealed himself to him. And I think it's as good a description of any as being filled with the Holy Spirit that he said, I look back on everything I've written, and it feels like so much straw now. Isn't that amazing? This brilliant man who truly loved the Lord and wanted to serve him had this amazing writing and this brilliant thing that people still study to this day, but he had one encounter with the Holy Spirit, and that changed his view of God so much and brought him so much closer to God than all that study. He looked back on this thing and said, what a waste of time. He knew. He had that sensitivity that, like, this is what the Bible says. Where is it? And then God showed himself to him, and it changed the course of his entire life. The Bible gives us the expectation that sometimes the Lord will intervene in the ordinary with something miraculous and extraordinary. 
specifically the healing of the sick. Does that mean he's going to heal everybody? No, we talked about that. Immediately we run right to that. Why? Because we're afraid that we're going to embarrass God. But we've all got the stories, didn't I just say? We've all got them. And as I said that, all of you were going, yeah, yeah. And you're leaning, yeah, it's like that thing that happened to that guy. We all have those stories. We're all seeing them in our lives, but we don't want to talk about them. And I really, truly believe that that's the enemy trying to prevent faith from being built up. Is silver and gold all that we have to offer the world anymore? No, of course not. We have a salvation that not just touches the soul, but touches the rest of your life too. The Lord brings total transformation. Well, how often should we expect them? Here's my answer. More than you think. How often does God want to heal? I think more times than we think. Can I put a number on it? No, that'd be ridiculous to put a number on it. But I will say that I'll bet you the more people you pray to be healed, the more people we will see healed. That's simple math, isn't it? (laughs) The more people you pray for, the more answers to prayer you will see. So what do I do? Where do I go from here? You go right back to what we said at the very beginning and adhere to the spiritual disciplines. Draw close to Jesus. I'm going to go home and flex my miracle muscles. No, just go home and read your Bible. Go home and pray. Fellowship with the church. Tell those stories to each other so that when the moment comes, you're ready and say, you know what? Maybe God wants to do something here. Let's pray. That's it. There's no no beating you over the head and saying, go home and do more crazy things. You just do the simple things. And we're going to turn to the table of the Lord here in just a second, and we're going to remember how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I want you to remember that the Bible ties the ongoing, practical, miraculous work of the Lord to what he did on the cross. I don't even claim to fully understand that, but I know that that's what the Bible says. If we believe that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father with all authority, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And he said, so come, ask anything you want, I'll give it to you. We should believe that the Lord is ready more often than I think we want to realize. He's ready to invade the ordinary with something extraordinary.